Welcome to Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program. I'm your host, John Lovering. On this track, I present another excellent rebroadcast of the Biography and Sound series, which was produced and broadcast in the 1950s. Most critics say that the Biography of Sound was one of the best examples of radio excellence. The productions were exemplary and the episodes were compelling. Each episode was an hour-long documentary on the life and times of important historical figures in the history of the nation. It was produced by Joseph O. Myers and ran from 1954 to 58, producing some 97 programs. Myers produced the show, incorporating sound clips of the featured person, if such sound clips existed, along with comments by friends and foes. Radio audiences were fascinated with how well this program was edited and put together. On this track, you're going to hear the biography of sound featuring the life and times of Theodore Roosevelt. That was the next to last program in the series and was aired on October 23, 1958. It was number 96 in the series. There have been many, many books on Theodore Roosevelt, and one of my favorite was The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt by historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. Ken Burns also produced a documentary film on PBS called The Roosevelts, an intimate history which has some remarkable content in Theodore Roosevelt's life and accomplishments. But for now, enjoy Biography of Sound, Theodore Roosevelt from October 23, 1958 on NBC Radio. Thank you for listening to Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program. Your support is much appreciated. This is Nightline, your tie-line to the world. Tonight, we mark the 100th birthday of a great American president with a repeat of one of NBC's award-winning biographies in sound. The age of Theodore Roosevelt was a young age, a very different world from that of today. Mrs. Gifford Pinchot. He was a leader, a leader par excellence, bold, imaginative. To those who knew him, as much as the public at large, he never was anything except as a dazzling comment flashing through a drab world. Good evening, this is Walter O'Keefe. Tonight, Nightline brings you an hour-long biography and sound of one of the most extraordinary men of this age, the 26th President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt. It was said of T.R., that he was a many-sided man, and every side was like an electric battery. To tell you of some of those many sides will be friends, relatives, and acquaintances of the great Rough Rider. He was born on October 27th at 28 East 20th Street in New York City. As a youngster, he was not healthy and began life with a handicap of more than the usual number of childhood illnesses. His daughter, Mrs. Richard Derby, tells us... He was as very weak. And suffering small boy, he had asthma and was very, very far from well. And he was determined he was going to grow up to be a strong man. And his father, who was, I've said, I think, was a very wise and kind man, helped him in every way he could. So my father uh, conquered his own physical weakness. T.R. was interested in birds, and as a boy, his eyes were always uh, difficult. <laughs> 
problem for him. And that's hard when you're looking for birds. And you must have had very difficult times because no one in those days knew as much as they do now about uh, the difficulties that children have with nearsightedness. And suddenly his father realized how little he saw and he was given glasses and a whole new world opened to him, he said. It was fabulous the way he could, with his great thick glasses, he could spot a warbler in the trees and get it right every time. And he did it thoroughly. He was a good bird man, not a, not a fake in any way. And he was, when he was uh, uncertain of a bird, he was uncertain of it, and that was that. By the time he was only 10 or 12, he was really actively interested. The late Mr. Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. once recorded this impression of his father. There's a family story telling how his elder sister objected when she found he was keeping dead mice in the icebox. He's supposed to have remarked solemnly on hearing this, that she was obstructing science. It was at about this time that he founded the family museum. Museum in his own house. Because of his poor health, young Roosevelt did his elementary school work at home with a tutor. But by the time he was 18, he had deliberately and with great persistence built up his frail body and was able to attend college. He chose Harvard and was graduated in 1880. Mr. Herman Hagedorn, friend and biographer of Theodore Roosevelt. Until uh, he left college, he really was determined to be a naturalist. What turned him against it were two things. One was that uh, there seemed to be no provision for the outdoor naturalist in the, in the training of scientists in that field. The other point was that uh, he wanted to get married, and he realized that uh, a naturalist would have an awful hard time keeping a family fed. At that time, he decided to study law. And he did study law for a year or so at Columbia. But uh, by that time, the politics began to absorb him. Shortly after his marriage, he joined uh, the Republican Political Club of the 21st Assembly District in New York. And uh, a striking instance of his uh, gift for leadership was that within the uh, for three months, he was one of the most prominent, though the youngest, member of the Assembly. And within three years, he was a national figure in Republican politics. On February 12, 1884, Roosevelt's daughter Alice was born, but the following day, both his wife and his mother died. T.R. was stunned with grief, but he completed his term in the Assembly and in June returned to the Badlands of Western Dakota, where the previous autumn he had established a ranch. For three years, he lived a ranchman's life, branding calves, riding in the hills for stray cattle, rounding up rustlers. Incidentally, he shot his first grizzly bear, and all the while he was developing those qualities that were to stand him in such good stead in time to come. What were some of these qualities? We asked the Honorable Judge Learned Hand. He was, uh, at least to a young man, and it always remained so. A, a man of overwhelming power. We asked the same question of Mr. John Lord O'Brien. What impressed me was the reserve that lay behind his uh, physical appearance. He, had, he gave you the impression of having unlimited power held in restraint. He was uh, 
perhaps a better word would be, he seemed to me to be a very combative uh, man. Uh, but his combativeness was not inaccessible to, to debate. Mr. Stanley Isaacs, councilman of the city of New York, recalls... People thought and said of Theodore Roosevelt that he was very hasty in action. Uh, nothing could be further than the truth. He responded at once to any call or any demand or any question, largely because he was well prepared. Uh, his response was automatic because he had embedded in his mind and soul the highest possible standards. And it was those standards he applied automatically to the problems that he faced. Isn't that, as a cowboy in the Badlands, never to pull a gun unless you meant to shoot. And it stood him in good stead. A call from the Republicans in New York City brought Roosevelt back east and back into politics in 1886. He ran for mayor, but was defeated. That same year in London, he married a childhood friend, Edith Kermit Carrow, and took her to Sagamore Hill, the home he had built at Oyster Bay, New York. Of her mother-in-law, Mrs. Kermit Roosevelt recalls... She was the perfect wife for Theodore Roosevelt. He loved her wit, he loved her humor. He thought she was the most beautiful thing that ever lived. And to see him look down the table at her and say, Darling, Edie, what do you think about this? Or what is your comment on that? And our comment was always worth listening to. It had been T.R.'s intention to devote himself to writing, but his interest in public affairs drew him back into politics. In 1889, President Harrison made him a member of the United States Civil Service Commission in Washington, a position he left in 1895 when he became president of the police board of New York City. One thing he made up his mind to do, that he was there to enforce the law. Mr. Stanley Isaacs. One very unpopular law was what was then known as the Sunday closing law, which compelled saloons to close on Sundays. And uh, a law that had been on the statute books, but violated pretty generally, and which he proceeded to enforce. Well, that, of course, created tremendous antagonism. And the Brewers organized a tremendous parade of protest. Roosevelt's reply was, if the law isn't sound, repeal it, but as long as it's on the statute books, I'm going to enforce it. And he met that parade argument by going to the reviewing stand, standing up in the reviewing stand and reviewing the parade himself, just to show that he wasn't afraid of anybody or of any opposition, and that he was ready to face it squarely. Serving with T.R. on the New York Police Board was General Avery D. Andrews. General Andrews has recorded an historic portrait of T.R. as a young man, but time permits only this small segment. There was, when we were appointed, in every station house, one or more rooms where poor homeless people without a place to sleep were allowed to use. The rooms were unsanitary, crowded, and in every way a disgrace to the city of New York. It was only when Roosevelt was taken to visit those rooms by his good friend and my good friend, Jacob Reese, who had himself, as a boy immigrant, spent one or more nights in those loathsome rooms. Entirely due to Roosevelt's influence, they were closed and suitable 
night lodgings for the poor with sanitary arrangements were later opened in their place. Nothing that Roosevelt did pleased him more than that elimination of those filthy lodging house rooms. The election of William McKinley to the presidency brought Roosevelt back to Washington as assistant secretary of the Navy. The conditions in Cuba convinced him that war with Spain was inevitable, and he set to work to make the Navy prepared. When hostilities broke out in April 1898, T.R. resigned from the Navy Department and with his friend Leonard Wood, a young Army surgeon, organized the first United States Volunteer Cavalry. The Rough Riders, as they came to be called, trained at Fort Sam Houston. Mr. Henry P. Fletcher, former ambassador to Chile, Mexico, Belgium, and Italy, and a Rough Rider, recalls their first encounter with the Spanish. The uh, first engagement we had was at a place called Las Guasimas. And uh, a very short engagement, but we lost a few men. After that, we went off towards Santiago. We were taken up to a place called El, uh, El Poso to get ready to go to, to make the charge up San Juan Hill. We were deployed and uh, told to advance by rushes uh, toward that range of hills. And so we uh, took our carbines, and we were getting along rather slowly, taking what cover we could by getting as close to the ground as we could when Colonel Roosevelt came back and uh, said, Well, I never thought that I would uh, have difficulty leading my men under fire. And uh, he was riding a little bay horse, pony, really. And uh, one of the Texans lying in the grass alongside there said, Well, Colonel, if you get off that damned horse, we'll go along all right. And the Colonel got off the horse. And after that, he had to puff to keep up going with us because he wasn't quite as spry as some of us. However, we got up there and... Very soon, uh, the thing was over. The Rough Riders were mustered out of service on September 15, 1898. Two weeks later, the Republican Party of New York nominated him as its candidate for governor, and T.R. won the election. And while the capital is at Albany, home to T.R. was always Sagamore Hill. Far and away, his greatest happiness was his home, his family, his life at Sagamore Hill. Mrs. Derby. It was an extraordinarily happy life. We had no great sorrows, no great tragedies until we were all grown up. And uh, he loved the outdoors, as you know. He loved the life in the fields and in the woods and on the water around Sagamore Hill. Uh, he loved all the children. There were 18 or 20 of us young cousins there. And we had the most tremendous games. We went... Uh, riding together. We went swimming together. We had tremendous picnics. We camped out overnight. On a Sunday afternoon, he would gather all the cousins, and there were tribes of them. T.R.'s niece, Mrs. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he would go to the top of Cooper's Bluff, and then he would stand everybody in line according to age and size. And he at the head would dash down Cooper's Bluff, which was very high. At high tide, 
The water was right up to the foot of it. At low tide, you had a little beach. And he would run down this steep, steep, sandy cliff. And I was frightened, of course, as I was of everything at that time. I'm, but I didn't dare say so when I followed the others down. And then we had to climb up again. And you slid back two steps for every one you got up. And when I got to the top, all I could do was just lie there exhausted and wish that Uncle Ted was not quite so energetic. The Sunday afternoon walks have followed the leader with the motto over and through, but never around, filled me with abject terror, but glorious excitement. T.R.'s niece, Mrs. Frances Cole. We climbed a tree instead of going around it and scrambled up a shed and dropped perilously on the other side. He despised pettiness, cowardice, greed, false pride, or conceit. But his never-failing humor saved the day when we had shown weakness by word or deed. And he never failed in his tenderness to a sick child or to a young child who was not able to follow in his very strenuous leadership. When the young Roosevelts weren't living an adventure, they were reading about one. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because to me that's one of the fundamental things in our family, and one of the things for which I'm most grateful to my father and mother, because books were the background of our lives. They were around us everywhere at Sagamore, in the library, in my mother's room, in the bedrooms, upstairs, wherever you went, there were books. My father began when we were very little, before we really understood at all what the books were about, and he read to us. He read to the boys and me, too, what we call the eye stories, which were accounts of explorations in Africa. Uh, he used to recite poetry. Uh, he had that great gift, as indeed had my mother, of remembering things by heart. And he used to recite poetry, all of Longfellow, all King Olaf, the saga of King Olaf. And I remember well his reading Heroward of the Wake. And he finally having to stop one of us, because there were so many words we didn't understand. And he'd say, write them down, and I'll tell you what they mean later. And that went on all our lives. And uh, it was always a stimulus, and it was always a shared enthusiasm with us. Once T.R. was invited by President McKinley to be his overnight guest, but T.R. declined because he had promised the children he'd be home to celebrate the 4th of July with them. Would you tell us about one of those famous celebrations, Mrs. Derby? Well, Fourth of July in those days, as you know, was a very different Fourth uh, than it is in these years. In those times, we were allowed to save our money, which we did with great care, and go down and buy the loudest and most dangerous firecrackers in the village. And so that we loved it all, and my brothers used to get up early in the morning and wake everyone in the neighborhood, uh, sometimes to their pleasure and sometimes to their active dislike of us. And then in the evening, we always had a, a, a party. And at that party, my father was the life and soul of it, as he generally was of any party. Rockets were sent off, which quite often, instead of going up, went down and scattered us all. 
Um, we used to have gas balloons. You had to hold them all down and then light them, and then they soared away into the air. They had a habit of coming down unexpectedly, and I know several times we set fire to neighbors' property. But behind all that of the 4th of July, there was the feeling that we were celebrating something that was of great value to each one of us as young Americans. Against his wishes, for he dreaded the inactivity that then accompanied that office, T.R. was nominated for the vice presidency to run with McKinley. And, of course, they won. But T.R.'s dread of four years of inactivity were needless. For on September 6, 1901 in Buffalo, President McKinley was shot by an anarchist. The news reached Roosevelt while he was vacationing with his family in a remote region of the Adirondacks. He made arrangements for a relay of horses and began the perilous trip down the mountain. The roads were in frightful condition. There was no moon. The trip was made by buckboard in complete darkness with the horses having to pick their own way. The driver was a daring Irishman and uh, he had a pair of tremendously spirited horses and they uh, went lickety-split down this wild and storm-broken road. And... uh, once the driver turned to Mr. Oldwood, he said, uh, you want me to slow down? Where we are now, it's uh, there's a drop of 100 feet. If the horses uh, uh, make a mistake, down we go. Mr. Oldwood said, no, I'll go on, go on. You've got to get there. And uh, they, they made that, that trip in the dark in record time. And ever since, sportsmen have been trying to to do it by day and beat that record. No one has ever been able to do it. President McKinley had at first been given a fighting chance for life, but he died on September 14th. On that same day, Theodore Roosevelt took the oath of office of President of the United States, the youngest man ever to hold that office. America was like a new boy in school when he came to the presidency. Uh, when, When he left it, uh, the nation was respected throughout the world as a first-class power. It meant what he said, was unafraid, and prepared for whatever might come. This is Nightline, which is presenting a biography and sound of Theodore Roosevelt. We will return with part two of our biography in 60 seconds. Ladies and gentlemen, October is Girl Scout time in New York. Campaign time to raise $1,300,000 to maintain and expand this unique program for girls. Any girl can be a Girl Scout, if there's room. And Girl Scouting means belonging, not only in her own troop and neighborhood, but as part of a great citywide and national organization of sister Girl Scouts. Girl Scouting is a program which fits into the neighborhood, any neighborhood, with the help of the churches, schools, and other organizations. It recruits its support and volunteer adult leadership from the neighborhood and is an asset to the community. There are 2,703 Girl Scout troops in Greater New York organized in neighborhoods with a total membership of 85,000 girls and adults. And still, there are more than 15,000 on waiting lists, girls who want to be scouts. So when your Girl Scout neighbor calls on you, don't fail her. Give generously to support this program and to help make room for more. You're listening to NBC 660 WRCA and WRCA-FM, New York. This is Walter O'Keefe, your Nightline host. We continue now with part two of a biography and sound of Theodore Roosevelt. In 1901, Theodore Roosevelt took the oath of office as president of the United States. As president, 
T.R. acted boldly, both at home and abroad, and one of his first acts was to put an end to the waste of our natural resources. Mr. Fairfield Osborne, president of the Conservation Foundation and a friend of T.R.'s children, tells us... In those days, in the first place, we had about 80 or 90 million people who were not the pressures. We were relatively using our resources, not up to the capacity of, that they could produce for us. But Theodore Roosevelt clearly saw the time this is going to be a great national problem in the years ahead. Sure, he had a great ally in Gifford Pinchot, but the payoff is those two men teamed up, and Gifford Pinchot, with his gifts, could go to the present United States and get an ally of such power and value and influence that it really was the birthday of what has become the conservation conception and uh, movement in our country today. That goes down in my book as vision. But all the while, he was what I think of as a man of nature. And when I say that, I mean a man who is sensitive to the wonders of nature, the wonders of animal life, the wonders of natural things. That love that he had for nature is really doesn't generally go along with a man of such political power and action uh, as Theodore Roosevelt. When Roosevelt came to the presidency, the average American was moving rapidly towards the cynical conclusion that there was one law for the rich and another for the poor. The large trusts carried on their existence in a kind of twilight zone between state and federal authority where neither seemed to be able to reach them. But they had reckoned without Theodore Roosevelt who promptly earned for himself the name, the Trust Buster. He was the one who really started to awaken the conscience of the people of the country on um, corruption in government and uh, on the influence of uh, business on government. Mrs. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Much of the reform that came later and many other presidencies had its roots in what he did uh, in the first instance. He was called, exactly as my husband was called, a traitor to his class. I've always been amused by this because, as a matter of fact, I think, he saved much that his class was interested in by beginning to bring it into a condition where it could meet the conscience of the people at that time. T.R. acted with equal vigor in foreign affairs. I also remember his uh, great uh, foreign policy, which uh, was uh, particularized by the statement, uh, speak uh, softly but carry a big stick. Senator Roy Watkins of Utah. I remember that in connection with the uh, trip that he sent the uh, fleet on around the world. At a moment, it looked like we might have some difficulty with Japan. And the uh, fleet uh, made the trip around the world and dropped in at Japan on its way. It made a courtesy call, and our troubles all disappeared. Sometimes, T.R.'s handling of foreign affairs was startlingly bold. Mr. William Savakul, a friend and political supporter of Roosevelt's, recalls... Germany was going to land troops in Venezuela. And he sent for the German ambassador and said, if that occurs, or is there any prospect of it, I will send Dewey down there. 
and he didn't hear anything from <clears throat> for seven days. And apparently the ambassador thought he was bluffing. And he went back again <clears throat> and said, if you don't move those ships out of there, I'll send Dewey down inside of two days. And then before that time, the man came back and said, we'll agree to, to arbitrate. That's what the president wanted. And the president gave the Kaiser the credit of being willing to arbitrate. That was, that was one world at war that he stopped, absolutely. Another war that Roosevelt stopped was the bitter struggle that had been going on for a year and a half between Russia and Japan. TR offered to act as mediator to end the war. Both countries accepted the offer and sent peace commissioners to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. There, a treaty was signed in September of 1905 and the war was over. Once again, people everywhere realized that in TR, America had a president who was an international force. Mr. Rosewood was in the midst of the uh, negotiations for the settlement of the Russo-Japanese War in August 1905, when one of the first uh, American submarines, the Plunger, uh, came into Oyster Bay Harbor. Uh, the president had uh, shown his interest in this new uh, type of war vessel. And one uh, rainy day, he slipped out of Sagamore Hill in an old raincoat when, when the Secret Service men weren't watching. And uh, Mrs. Roosevelt wasn't watching either. And uh, went down to the harbor and uh, went, uh, was uh, taken out in a launch to the plunger. And for an hour, he cruised uh, under the waters of, uh, of Oyster Bay and, and Long Island Sound uh, at the controls a good part of the time. And it always seemed to me to be uh, significant that in the midst of uh, these negotiations in which he must have known that uh, he was the key figure, he thought so little of his own importance as to uh, risk his life in, this, uh, in the submarine. Whether he was at the White House or at Sagamore Hill, Roosevelt surrounded himself with fascinating people from every walk of life. Mrs. William Loeb, widow of T.R.'s secretary, recalls a typical gathering. There'd be maybe authors, um, Owen Worcester. There was Seth Bullock from out in the South Dakota. He was the first sheriff of Deadwood. Mr. Dooley Dunn. And uh, a man who, uh, from the West, who caught wolves without shooting or anything. You'd never know all sorts of people with whom he surrounded himself, do you see? All types. One lunch at the White House is one of my keenest memories. Mrs. Frances Cole. It was a big lunch in the state dining room, and I sat next to John Burroughs, about four or five seats away from Uncle Ted. Uncle Ted became so absorbed almost immediately in a discussion with John Burroughs 
on the bird notes of a very particular bird uh, that at one time the only thing that could be heard at our end of the table was a rather tense determination on Uncle Ted's part that the bird went tweet-wee to wee and John Burroughs, less tense but very firm, Theodore, you are wrong. It goes tweet-a-wee, tweet-a-wee. The President of the United States had forgotten everything else except the song of a bird. On another occasion, T.R. took time from his presidential duties to be a guest at the wedding of his niece, Eleanor, to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Well, he was much more than a guest because um, he was my godfather. He wanted to give me away at my wedding. But he couldn't just come up when he was president of the United States to give an inconspicuous little girl who was his niece away. So he combined it with the St. Patrick's Day parade, which he was attending in any case. This made my wedding a very complicated affair because I was married in my cousin, Mrs. Henry Parrish's house. And uh, every street was blocked and barred, first for his security, and secondly, because the parade was going by. And the visitors had the most terrible time, the guests at the wedding had the most terrible time to arrive. They were late, and some of them I don't think ever did arrive, but he arrived. And, of course, then we realized something which my husband and I uh, remembered in future life, that when a president of the United States comes anywhere uh, in this country, he is the most important person there. Uh, Ordinarily, at a wedding, it might be the bride and groom, but not if the president is there. After the ceremony was over and uh, the line had broken up, my husband and I were standing in one room, we found that we were standing all alone because everybody had followed the president into the other room where he was telling stories. He was very good at telling stories, and he loved to tell them, and he was quite oblivious of the fact that he had drawn everyone away, and so we just decided to join the president's audience, and we did. A very comical thing happened one night. Mr. Fairfield Osborne. We kids had been... We'd gone out to a dance in Washington. We got home pretty late. It was a lovely April night. And so we all sneaked upstairs and went through the upper rooms and found a ladder and got on the roof of the White House. Well, we were dancing around up there, and I guess we were yelling a little bit, and suddenly there's a roar from below the belly of the house, a stentorian bull moose roar. Come down out of there, you naughty children. And there was the President of the United States voice coming up to us in the night air. We were really scared. So we came to the head of the stairs, which we saw an abrupt ladder coming down from the roof. And the base of the ladder was the President of the United States holding a candle saying, You naughty children, go to bed. And as we came down and passed him to the foot of the ladder, he gave us each a slap on the back, but a lovely, loving twinkle in the eye. Whatever T.R. did was followed by the people of this country with avid interest, for he entered into their lives and he kindled fires in them. He made people believe, actually made them believe. He convinced them that they did have ideals, and they listened to him. Mr. John Lord O'Brien? And that is one explanation for the fact that 
his power over the people of the country uh, was so pervasive. It was not based on logical argument. It was based on the earnestness and power of a great human personality. Above everything else, it was in terms of patriotism that he talked. He was talking about the idea that there was an American ideal that was different. And that ideal was compounded, of course, of humanitarianism, sympathy, and a very strong inclination to fight down uh, evil doing wherever it was found. In March of 1909, T.R. retired from the presidency and began preparing for a scientific expedition to Africa. T.R.'s African adventure, like all of his activities, was the subject of much newspaper cartooning. I remember one of the lovely ones of him going to Africa, and there was a picture of him going to Africa and of Wall Street, and then saying, Wall Street expects every lion to do its duty. And he enjoyed that one thoroughly. Roosevelt entered Africa at Mombasa, and for ten months, moving northward, he hunted big game and collected specimens. He emerged from the African wilderness at the end of February in 1910 and had intended to travel quietly home. But his fame was too great, and a stir was created everywhere he went. He was awarded the degree of LLD at Cambridge. Mrs. Richard Derby. It was the custom at Cambridge that when a distinguished speaker was there, they could play jokes. And as he started his speech... He was aware of a titter running through the audience, and it grew and grew louder, and he couldn't imagine what they were laughing at until he looked around and saw a gigantic teddy bear dressed in cap and gown, which was being let down from the ceiling on a rope. Now, he couldn't ignore it, and if he'd been annoyed, it would have been dreadful. Instead of that, he waited until it was down far enough, and then he walked over, very solemnly bowed to it, and shook it by the paw. He returned to the United States on June 18th, 1910, and it was not long before he was involved in the struggle between the conservative and progressive elements which threatened to split the Republican Party. As the struggle grew more bitter, pressure was brought on T.R. to declare himself a candidate for the presidency, and in February of 1912, to use his own phrase, he threw his hat in the ring. At the Republican National Convention in Chicago, however, the nomination went to William Howard Taft. It was then that the defeated elements under T.R.'s leadership, organized the Progressive Party. After he was beaten in the convention... Judge Learned Hand. He could not have prevented the emergence of the Progressive Party. That the feeling was so strong in Chicago at that time that his hand was forced. And he didn't want to run. He was very sagacious. And I think he knew that he didn't have any chance... But uh, he couldn't quite run out on these people who regarded him as a savior. The first convention of the Progressive Party proved unique in American politics in the fact that women were admitted as delegates. Senator Roy Watkins tells us... It is related that during the campaign, Mr. Roosevelt was on a platform reviewing a torchlight parade. Those torchlight parades were quite frequent in those days, and along parade came by. He was standing there with a number of politicians as a section made up of women came by singing Onward Christian Soldiers. And some of the, one of the politicians standing with Teddy turned to him and says, isn't this hell having women and religion in politics? 
as quick as a flash, Roosevelt turned to him and he said, well, it may take a little of the hell out of politics. At the height of the campaign, on his way to make a speech in Milwaukee, an attempt by a fanatic was made on Roosevelt's life. It was found later that the folded copy of the speech he had given and a spectacle case through which the bullet passed were all that saved his life by slowing down the bullet so that it stopped only a half inch away from the lung. When T.R. recovered, he continued his campaign, but he lost to Woodrow Wilson. Well, I've always felt that the uh, count him out at that time has changed the course of history for generations to come. Mr. William Sebacool. Roosevelt was a man that believed in preparedness. When, when he left the presidency, we had the second largest Navy in the world, pretty near as good as the top. And when the World War came on, we were way down a poor fourth. And if we had the strength that we had when Roosevelt went out, there'd have never been any World War. After his defeat, Roosevelt returned to the happy life at Sagamore Hill. He wrote his autobiography and continued his work as contributing editor to Outlook magazine. One day in 1913, he took time out to make a speech for the Boys Progressive League, a speech recorded on an Edison phonograph and preserved now for all time. Here is an excerpt from that speech, the voice of Theodore Roosevelt. The principles for which we stand are the principles of fair play and a square deal for every man and every woman in the United States. A square deal politically, a square deal in matters social and industrial. I wish to see you boys act as good citizens in the same way I'd expect any one of you to act in a football game. In other words, don't flinch, don't foul, and hit the line hard. Although T.R. was now living the life of a country gentleman, Life at Sagamore Hill by no means resembled a scene of quiet pastoral inactivity. I realized before I'd been 24 hours at Sagamore Hill that nothing in my upbringing had in any way prepared me for the frenzied activity into which I was plunged. Mrs. Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. Something was going on every minute of the day. The house was always full of people. The telephone never stopped ringing. Conferences were held continually. And in the evenings, my father-in-law received the newspaper men. And then there were the family picnics. One day, one of the hottest days I've ever known, my father-in-law announced he would take the day off and we would all go on a picnic. Everyone was enthusiastic. And I liked picnics, too. Friends and cousins had been notified, and by 10 o'clock, a dozen people had gathered, carrying and various supplies, and we headed for the beach. We walked the half-mile through the woods as fast as we could put one foot before the other, and I couldn't understand this great haste until I realized the mosquitoes in those woods were as big as bats. Soon I was running ahead of everybody. We all got into rowboats, and under the blazing sun we rowed and rowed. There was no breeze. The sound was as calm as glass. Two hours later we landed on a beach just like the one we'd started from, except that it was further from home. The boats were drawn up, and we settled down on the water's edge. We couldn't go near the trees because of poison ivy. The provisions were spread out, and 
a kettle filled, to make tea. The thought of hot tea was depressing enough, but it was worse to see the roaring fire built over the clams. And when they were supposed to be cooked, my father-in-law selected one, a large one, opened it and sprinkled it with salt and pepper and handed it to me. It was large and it had a long black neck. I managed to get it all into my mouth, burning myself quite badly. And although it was gritty with sand, it was delicious at first, but that soon wore off and it was, it was like eating a piece of old rubber hose. I chewed and chewed and looked around at everybody else eating clams, wondering how they did it. Finally, I hid it under a log. And I remember getting home that day. While we were having lunch, a wind started to blow. It had taken us two hours to get there. It took, our, it took us four hours to get back. We were all sunburned and hands were blistered. But everybody said it was a mo one of the most delightful picnics they ever had had. By the end of our visit, I had gained some valuable experience. It was very good training, but while it went on, I lost 26 pounds, and I've never regained them. In the autumn of that year, T.R. was invited to South America to make a tour of the capital cities and speak about democracy. He arrived in October and was received with enthusiasm wherever he went. Some Brazilian scientists succeeded in interesting him in exploring a hitherto unknown river, only vaguely suggested on the map as the River of Doubt. With his son Kermit and a Brazilian explorer in his party, T.R. set out on a trip that was supposed to last two months. It took almost six months. Most of that period, the newspapers came out with accounts of how the expedition was obviously lost. Mrs. Kermit Roosevelt. They had every hardship and every calamity. They found that the jungle went right down to the river. Very thick. They came to countless rapids, which didn't present any way of making a portage. They would simply have to cut their way through the wilderness, the jungle, and then build more dugouts to continue their trip. Food gave out, and it was a bad year for game, so that they lived on nuts and half rations and quarter rations a great part of the time. One of the men in the expedition went mad and killed another man. And my father-in-law had an infected leg and had to be carried. It was no wonder that the trip took so many more months than they'd expected. In honor of T.R.'s accomplishment, the Brazilian government rechristened the River of Doubt, the Rio Roosevelt. T.R. returned to the United States in May 1914, and early August brought the catastrophe in Europe which he had foreseen. He pleaded for preparedness and stormed at Wilson for what he considered inept and timid leadership. Finally, in 1917, when the United States entered the war, the colonel, as Roosevelt was affectionately known, made a trip down to Washington. Mrs. Kermit Roosevelt remembers... D.R. went to the White House, to Wilson, and went in and asked him if he would allow him to lead a division in France. And Wilson didn't look particularly responsive. But he said, if you don't feel you can do that, all I beg is that you will use my services in some way, in some constructive way. And everything that has been between us in the past will be like chaff on the wind. Just use me. And President Wilson 
said. You're very kind indeed, Colonel Russell, and I will think it over and let you know. From that day to the day of T.R.'s death, he never heard from President Wilson. As he went out from seeing the president, he ran into Colonel House, and Colonel House went over to him and said, Oh, Colonel Roosevelt, you look very depressed. What is the matter? And he said, Of course I'm depressed. I've, all I've been doing is asking the president to allow me an opportunity to be killed. And Colonel House put his hand on Colonel Roosevelt's arm and said, Oh, Colonel Roosevelt, did you make that point quite clear to the president? All the boys had learned from their father this ardor for their country. And as their mother said when uh, the youngest went to France, yes, it was hard when Quentin went, but you can't bring up boys to be eagles and expect them to turn out sparrows. Forbidden to fight in the field, T.R. threw himself into the fight at home. He spoke for the Liberty Loan Campaign, for the Red Cross, and other relief agencies. He fought for speed in military preparation and for a realistic attitude toward our participation in the struggle. With his own sons fighting in Europe, his grandchildren were a great source of delight to Theodore Roosevelt. And often he sat down to write to his sons and his daughter-in-law in Europe. One letter described a visit that my children made to Sagamore Hill. And in this letter, my daughter Gracie was age six, Teddy was three and a half, and Cornelius was two. And my father-in-law wrote me, Teddy's memory was much clearer about the pigs than about me. He greeted me affably, but then inquired of a delighted bystander, what is that man's name? At supper, in pure friendliness, and from a desire to encourage closer intimacy, he put the question to me direct in a deep voice. Gracie explained that I was grandfather, adding that he had two grandmothers who were twins. This afternoon, I took the three to that haven of delight, the pig pen. I trundled Sonny in his baby carriage. We fed the pigs with elderly apples, then we came to a small rick of hay down which I had to slide each in turn until I finally rebelled and then halted so each could have a drink of water. Mr. Truby Davison, a friend and neighbor of the Roosevelts, recalls a wartime visit to Sagamore Hill. It was at the time that Quentin had been reported missing. Um, nobody knew whether he was alive or dead or whether he was prisoner or what. A report had just come in from General Pershing that uh, another pilot had thought they had seen Quentin level off, so there was some hope. Well, my father was being visited at the time by a Prince Tokugawa, who was a member of the royal family in Japan and who was the head of the Japanese Red Cross. And he and some of his associates were staying at our house, and father uh, wanted to take them over to Sagamore Hill to meet the colonel. Uh, I went along with them. He greeted us at the door, couldn't have been more cordial and friendly. The colonel made a speech to this Japanese group, which wasn't just a hands-across-the-sea business. It was a very thoughtful speech involving history and dates and so on. And again, his concentration was very much in evidence. As we went out the door, I said, Colonel, I can't uh, leave without uh, hearing from you what hope you have about Quentin. And he said, Truby, I just received this telegram just before you came in from President Wilson. He took this telegram out of his pocket saying that Quentin was dead. Well, I never saw a, an example of uh, courage or fortitude that exceeded that my whole life. In February of 1918, 
T.R. became dangerously ill. He was operated upon, recovered, and returned to full activity. But now and again, the fever he had contracted in Brazil returned. I was in France for about a year and a half. And when I got back in December of 1918, my father-in-law was in the hospital. Mrs. Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. He went back to Sagamore Hill shortly after that. And a few days after Christmas, I went out to see him. We talked of many things, but mostly about Ted's war record. I said to him, you know, Father, Ted is always worried for fear he would not prove worthy of you. His answer was so characteristic that I wrote it down immediately afterwards. He said, worthy of me? Darling, I'm so very proud of him. He has won high honors, not only for his children, but like the Chinese, he has ennobled his ancestors. I walk with my head higher because of him. I've always taken satisfaction from the fact that when there was a war in 1898, I fought in it, and I did my best to get into this one. But my war was a bow and arrow affair compared to Ted's, and no one knows this better than I do. A week later, he died. His body rests in a little country cemetery at Oyster Bay. But the spirit of the great rough rider was too mighty to be borne away. It moves across this land he loved like a great wind. And the vigor and the nobility and the fearlessness he inspired in our people is a living monument to him. Theodore Roosevelt spoke to America and to free men everywhere. And the words he spoke breathed life for this generation and the generations to come. We here in America hold in our hands the hope of the world, the fate of the coming years. And shame and disgrace will be ours if in our eyes the light of high resolve is dimmed, if we trail in the dust the golden hopes of men. This country has never yet been called upon to meet a crisis in war or a crisis in peace to which it did not eventually prove equal. I preach the gospel of hope, of resolute and confident belief in the destiny of this mighty republic. We think that the greatest victories are yet to be won, the greatest deeds yet to be done, and that there are yet in store for our peoples and for the causes that we uphold grander triumphs than have ever yet been scored. <laughs> 